traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. I'm going to take you back now to 1966. In the last show, Rod Serling delivered that great speech at UCLA. He mentioned the Rumford Act, he mentioned Proposition 14, and those might be things that the American listeners are already aware of. But for anyone who isn't, like me, it was all new information. I just wanted to give a little more detail on what those things are. So just going from Wikipedia to fill in a few of those details, the Rumford Fair Housing Act was passed in 1963 in California to help end racial discrimination by property owners and landlords who refused to rent or sell their property to people based on their ethnicity. So for example, a white landlord might refuse to let their property to a black family and just wait for a white family to come along, that kind of thing. Uh, the act provided that landlords could not deny people housing because of ethnicity, religion, sex, marital status, physical handicap, or familial status. Now, Proposition 14 in 1964 was sponsored by the California Real Estate Association to counteract the effects of the act. And the wording of Proposition 14 was that neither the state nor any subdivision or agency thereof shall deny, limit, or abridge directly or indirectly the right of any person who is willing or desires to sell, lease, or rent any part or all of his real property to decline to sell, lease, or rent such property to such person or persons as he, in his absolute discretion, chooses. So basically what Proposition 14 was saying is that they wanted landlords, property owners, to have the right to sell to who they wanted. Proponents of Proposition 14 would often rely on freedom. To legislate on who I can sell or rent my property to takes away my own freedom of choice, which I should have as an American citizen to sell or rent to who I want. And what Rod Serling was very passionately saying in that speech was, sure, in an ideal world, we should all have the right to sell or rent to who we want. It's a basic freedom, but their freedom was being used to deny the freedom of other people, people from other ethnic backgrounds. So in effect, a landlord in a white neighborhood would not rent a property to a black family and the black family might find their options as to where they can live very limited and it kind of kept ghettos alive, it kept areas of distinct race alive because people didn't have a choice to go where they wanted to go. So that's what that's all about and I don't think I've put out an episode of the Twilight Zone podcast that has had such an immediate reaction as that speech did, and there's a few reasons for that. First of all, Rod Serling was a visionary, he was a forward-thinking guy, he was very progressive in a lot of ways, so of course something that he said 50 years ago is still gonna resonate with us today because the Twilight Zone still resonates with us today. But I think it was a little more than that. I think at the time where we are, where there is so much turmoil in the world, and I mentioned it briefly last week, a lot of people have commented that that speech could have been made yesterday, never mind 50 years ago. And when you think it was made 50 years ago, it still makes me sad that we haven't come as far as we should in that time. If you'd have asked Rod Sailing 50 years ago whether people would have still had these struggles, I would love to have heard what his answer was going to be, but I would imagine that he would hope that we wouldn't. So I thank everyone for their comments on that. I'm going to play for you now the second part of that visit to UCLA and in it Rod Sailing has a, a kind of sit down with 
or the students from the university who are asking questions and so on. Now, unfortunately, when the students were asking them questions, they didn't have microphones near to them, so they don't come through on the recording. I did try and amplify them to a degree so you could hear what the students were saying, but unfortunately, I think it's gonna take someone with a bit more skill than me in that department. So unfortunately, it is kind of these silences where the students ask questions and then Rod Sailing will answer them. Usually though, you can get the gist of what he's talking about. And I thought, you know what? I would rather put it out like this than not put it out at all. Because like I said, everyone seemed to really enjoy that speech from last time. And this is the second part of that. So I'm going to play that for you now. And hopefully before Christmas, we will have a regular episode of the show to close out the year on. So submitted for you, Rod Sailing at UCLA, part two. We have... Plenty of time, Mr. Swilling is going to be here uh, until 2 o'clock, and I hope that we can get to as many of your questions as we can. If you have a question, please raise your hand, try to shout it out. If someone can't hear a question, put your hand up and we'll start to use this and repeat it. If not, uh, I think it would be convenient for Mr. Swilling to, to speak without the microphone. So, someone start it off. Yes, yes sir. I haven't seen any related pictures, but I, uh, <laughs> you're not going to, I will not, I can't possibly respond to a question like that since I've never tried it. Have you? <laughs> I'm not trying to put you on, really. You mean socially, whether I think it's acceptable or that sort of thing, or do I get kicks, or what's the point of the question? Pardon me? Marijuana legalized? I seriously doubt it. If indeed what the medical men tell me is true, that it leads to yet uh, exposure to other drugs which might be more serious. If that indeed is true, I would take a dim view of legalizing marijuana. Besides, it's very expensive. Thank you. I'll meet you outside, young man. <laughs> we'll take a drag together. You make it sound like that's some sort of stigma. Uh, yes, pridefully I say I'm a homeowner. Me and the Gibraltar building and loan. Uh, yes, I am indeed. Why? Was the point of the question related to the tax thing? Oh, well, I'm not that close a neighbor, to tell you the truth. I live in Vincennes, Indiana. What I meant was, you know, by being a neighbor... Uh, no, I, I, no, my, I live in the Palisade, which is a far afield of here. Why I gather is there some current controversy about parking around here? The Palisades may be lot 45 before, yeah. the, <laughs> before it's all they over. They may be having classes in my basement before the month is out, I'm sure. Next God, isn't it uncomfortable standing in a smoke-filled room? Yes, sir. <laughs> Interesting question, thank you. I'm not at all knowledgeable on that, though it's a very moot point. I'm deeply concerned about it. Uh, I noted in the paper this morning in terms of a transcript of a, the current uh, meeting between Rafferty and the acting president of the uh, Education Board, a uh, comment was made by the chairman to Mr. Rafferty. I call him Red, White, and Blue Max. That's what I call him. <laughs> he and I have had our little tilts of late. Uh, Rafferty kept interrupting one of the speakers and the chairman of the committee of the council uh, pointed a finger at him and said, Dr. Rafferty, I will not permit, uh, so long as I am, you know, supervising these hearings, to allow you to interrupt any of the people. And Rafferty responded, well, that won't be too long. So the inference is quite clear. There's going to be a general house cleaning. I, I suppose it's very much dependent on which wing of the Republicans takes over in terms of the selection of educational personnel. Uh, if indeed it's a Rafferty-oriented thing, I think we're in major trouble. And on that happy note, I'd like to say that... <laughs> yes, sir. Well, of course, it was the deep concern of the Democratic Party that Governor Brown was not receiving the support that they thought he should receive from the over 21 college graduate students or the faculty, and that there was to be a kind of an 11th-hour appeal to the college campuses for precisely that kind of support because they felt that at this stage of the game with defeat staring them in the face and of course I think everyone knew if we were going to take a licking was that they figured that all right to hell with 19 
66. Let's start thinking of 68 and 72 and 76. And wherein is the nucleus of possible political support? No place else but college campuses. This is where you start to literally formulate political opinion and to devise uh, pressure and power groups of enlightened people who will support a more liberal political point of view. But unfortunately, as I say, this was an 11th hour concept which came in too late. And at that stage of the game, nobody thought they were going to win. I really think Pat Brown, who I must tell you, uh, is perhaps not the most prepossessing of men, is not the most articulate. Uh, on occasion, will take positions for political expediency, which we as liberals of necessity must turn our backs on. But I think he's a highly well-motivated man. I think he's a decent man. I think if you examine what have been the the uh, social attitudes espoused by Brown over the past 23 years in public life, you would find that, by and large, uh, they adhere pretty closely to a pretty progressive and enlightened point of view. And I, for one, was desperately sorry to see him leave the arena. Uh, that's my particular feeling. I, needless to say, would have loved it if we had a guy who looked like Reagan, who had the brains of John F. Kennedy, you know, and the political awareness of, uh, say, of Jesse Unruh, uh, and the power of an Al Smith, uh, and the rest of it. I wish we could find such a guy. Unfortunately, you know, they're hard, we're hard-pressed to find them. I note again, parenthetically, that already the Republicans are talking about Chuck Connors. Uh, well, I tell you something, it hurts me that I've never been asked to run for public office because I, I've got all the proper qualifications. When I was 11 years old, I had a tap dancing routine with a trained monkey. I swear to God, I used to entertain. Now... Quite obviously, as a result of the Tuesday election, uh, in considering the nature of politics, though I may not have been asked, that monkey might make it yet. You never can tell. Yes, sir. I was not as shattered uh, on most in most areas as I was uniquely here in California. Uh, I noted that there were two, you know, rabbit segregationists who got licked in Maryland and in uh, Oklahoma, was it? Or Kansas, where Rockefeller took Johnson. Arkansas. Arkansas, you see? That's right. He's going to come back and take a little political science course here and <laughs> learn where the states are. Uh, I find, you know, Romney uh, hardly a menacing man of any proportion. Uh, I was delighted to see Rockefeller take it in New York. And when people who say to me, you know, Rockefeller's a billionaire and, uh, you know, he's so politically oriented and he never takes a position, by God, I think back at that Cow Palace situation in San Francisco when alone this guy stood up and faced probably what was the most viciously anti-audience that anybody could conjure up uh, unless they sold tickets for it. Uh, and he stood up and faced them with a degree of courage that you that's rather, rather rare, I think. So I was delighted that Rockefeller won. So overall, I was not as disturbed nationally, since it's a, you know, it's an off, an off uh, year, uh, and every two years, I understand, uh, traditionally, we, you know, we run against this. Yes, ma'am. Probably not. <laughs> well, you could cry a little, I guess, to begin with. No, from now on, you know, we rebuild, much as every out party has to do. Uh, needless to say, in the first 48 hours, all you can do is reflect. But over the long haul, the weeks and the months to follow, if indeed you have a preoccupation with a liberal point of view and you want to make yourself heard and you have ideas as to what should be the makeup of a democratic party, how to revitalize it, how to make it associable with the people out here, uh, then you join your democratic clubs or what all and you start from scratch. I don't know of any. I, I realize it's a very negative response. I tell you, I've been gone from universities for so long that I'm not as aware as I should be of what goes on, as to what your thought processes are, as to what literally, you know, are the are the makeups and the functions of college groups within a campus. I do sense a tremendous political orientation among students nowadays, which was not the case when I was an undergraduate. That was 1916, of course. It was before France. Uh, no, in 46, in the post-war years, people were pretty lethargic about the whole goddamn thing. We'd just gone through a terrible war. Most of us were way over age to be students. I was 23 
which is awful. You know, first of all, you're, you wear a lot of hair, and then it's hard to put a beanie cap on, you know, when you enter. Uh, and in point of fact, really, you, you want to leave politics behind you, because in every true sense, that's what you've been exposed to for the last several years. So we were not nearly as politically oriented, or indeed as aware as college students are now. This is what buoys me up, really. When I talk to groups like this, not they agree with me all the time. Try the University of Wisconsin sometime, for example, or the University of Indiana, or a couple of the schools in which, you know, you don't have letters written to the editor uh, like you did at the Bruin today. And they would never use four-letter Anglo-Saxon words in their uh, newsprint. You know, the whole school would explode if that happened. Uh, but even with those students, they are oriented. They have a point of view. And they're thoughtful kids. And there's less prejudice, I think, on college campuses than almost uniquely in any social group, in any political group in the whole world. Boy, and this to me lies the hope and the salvation right here. Yes, ma'am. They tell me it's going to be Lynch, but of course, you know, this is by virtue of the fact that he's alone in the woods now. There's nobody around, and, you know, outside of Smokey the Bear, who do you get? <laughs> Lynch, I find, is a hell of a nice man, and a very well-thought-of man, and can be a most effective man. But he's, you know, he doesn't look like Regan, he doesn't talk like any of them. And politically, I doubt very much if we can rally around him, unless we rally around his brain. But where is the spokesman? Where is that articulate and attractive guy who can wage the banner and people gather around? That's what we got to find. Do you I think wish we had a Finch. I, sw I swear I do. Not just the Finch, but a guy like Finch. Do you think it would have been Schley, what with the with the heir of Kennedy, etc.? If he would have won, do you think that uh, with his ability to speak, good looks, etc., he would have been uh, a new man? Pardon me for using my prerogative. Which, which Kennedy are we talking about, Eric? If, you mean if Brown had looked like Kennedy, you mean? No, Norbert Schley. Norman Schley. What does Norman Schley look like? I have to pose the question. I've never seen him. Looks huh? like a nice guy. <laughs> uh, no, I seriously doubt really in this election, you know, if they came out looking like Gable at age 25, they could have done very much with it. We were doomed. There's no question about it. I don't think we'd have been doomed in most states because I think the issues are too much in the foreground there. In this state, it's an election of personalities, of emotion, of tried and true prejudices and the rest of it. And nobody can tell me that the white backlash didn't have a very definite bearing on this election. Yes, ma'am. I seriously doubt that because in point of fact, the viewpoints espoused by both Brown and Reagan insofar as the Vietnam situation is concerned were hard-pressed to distinguish. They were both the same. Uh, I, I couldn't perceive any real protest vote except perhaps uh, in, the, uh, in the Hatfield campaign uh, in which I think, to my knowledge, was the only one of, of a high office election in which the issue even was, was broached. I don't know. I tell you, that's another thing. Of course, it could take you hours to go into the various ramifications of what are the major issues of the time. But this is what destroyed me in this election. The fact that Vietnam was not an issue either pro or con. Here you're losing a hundred men a week in what appears to be a gigantic disposal. And it now relates itself to arithmetic. We don't think of the loss of life. We think of it arithmetically. We killed 119 and a half of them, and we, our losses were, quote, light, which now must be the euphemism of all time, because we only suffer light losses. And yet at the end of every month, there's 213 names and 700 names and 400 names, and we keep dying off. And to what end? That's my concern, and the fact that nobody gets up and protests, really, on a high level. Or indeed, that, that the, the American people don't respond in some way and say, wait a minute, hold off a second. All right, we will die, because we're quite accustomed to that. We've had 11 major wars in a relatively brief span of history. But why are we dying? To what end? Who wants us there? who beckons to us to remain there, and who indeed is the enemy? Now, if they could re-answer those questions, and if the populace asked the questions, I'd feel a little bit better by it. Yes, sir. What I consider Mariority would not be publishable even in the Daily Bruin. <laughs> Mar 
Moriarty and I have done everything but engage in letters to the editor of the L.A. Times. That's usually the ultimate in combat, boy. Uh, but Moriarty knows where I stand. I'm sure he could care less. But uh, I find him, number one, a demagogue. Number two, unprincipled. Number three, uh... Uh, well, now we get into the four-letter Anglo-Saxon words, and we simply can't do that. I find him a totally unwholesome individual. I think he's an asset to no one. I, I, and, the, and I'll tell you, quite apart from the fact that he quotes fascist sheets in trying to, you know, hoist Brown on a petard, is the fact that after Watts, not once did the mayor of the city of Los Angeles ever walk into the street in Watts, California, and take a look or a listen or feel anything as, as to what must be the collective anguish of a group of people who would do what they did. Now, they don't do it because they like to throw bricks. Oh, I'm sure a segment of them like to throw bricks. A segment of people in this room like to throw bricks. I mean, you'll find that no matter where you go. But there is obviously an underlying current ailment that must feed on these people and force them to take to the streets. Well, where was... Where was Yorty when the question was not even asked? This is what so disturbs me about this. I loved it when Kennedy got a hold of him in the, in the subcommittee there. And, and Mary Yorty bridled because he's unused to this kind of thing. And he said, Senator, you don't have to tell me how to run the city of Los Angeles. That's what he said to Kennedy. He didn't say it quite that well, of course. <laughs> I, I, I have a terribly mixed feeling about the man. I look back at some of the speeches, particularly those which have to do with what he feels were certain social ramifications of the Great Society program. I read his speeches in support of civil rights. I read speeches made below the Mason-Dixon line by Johnson, which were quite unusual for a politician, particularly a Texan. And I think to myself, obviously the man has something. Now, whether or not he believes it, and whether or not he is genuinely and sincerely motivated to say these things, I don't know. But I can't dismiss him out of hand because of the Vietnamese thing. I suppose a lot of you think I should. Uh, I have to withhold my total impression of the man until, you know, the end of office. I, I cannot, you know, I can't get up on my feet and scream uh, with pleasure at the fact that he occupies the White House. I cannot do that in conscience. And there are a few American presidents during my lifespan that I could. One of them, I think, would have been Adlai Stevenson had he ever run, if he had ever won. Uh, certainly John F. Kennedy in the last year. I, I realize there is this aura of, you know, celestial greatness that attend, would attend uh, properly any young man so tragically shorn of life at that given moment. And I suppose we are distorted, perhaps, in our recollections of the man. But my recollections do call for a, a picture of a gracious man and a wise man and a temperate man uh, in, insofar as Kennedy was concerned. And I think potentially this might have been the great American president. I'm not sure. But I rather think so. You don't agree with me? Oh, but the other man shaking his head. Destined to be killed? Well, I wouldn't subscribe to that view for any American. I can't hear you. Too fast for his time, you mean? And yet, boy, he, he provided a legacy for Lyndon Johnson. You know, the 90% of the basis of the whole, you know, domestic program of Lyndon Johnson is simply a... Well, in most economic, in most uh, social and economic areas, he was indeed, was he not? Oh, well, let's not get into a big argument because that's believing it. Yes, ma'am. As a presidential candidate, I don't think 68's the time. I seriously doubt it. I think it's going to be Johnson's ball game all over again. The well, I suppose you'd probably have to pose the question to a political science professor, but unless I'm mistaken that every incumbent has it going his way when he runs, with the possible exception of Harry Truman in 48. Uh, I think that's 
literally, you know, what is the ritual of American politics, that in the off year, the out party comes in, but the incumbent president two years later nonetheless has it going more his way. Yes, sir. Oh, indeed. No question about it. If, for example, we are mired in Vietnam in precisely the same manner in which we are today, and the Republicans put up Romney and Reagan, I think it'll be Romney and Reagan. And don't laugh, because in 1968, remember, you read it here first, like Hedda Hopper. <laughs> and two years from now, if the situation is roughly the equivalent of what it is today, I venture to say, you'll see a Romney-Reagan slate. And man, that's going to be a toughie. That's when we run, uh, I think, probably Gene Kelly. He dances much better. <laughs> and, uh, that kind of thing. Yes. I'd like not to respond to that if I may. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Admitting Red China to the UN? I, I think, indeed, what the hell? Why, what if we turn our backs and say they're going to disappear? I think it's ridiculous. And in point of fact, you know, I can't understand what is the position of the Defense Department in terms of the re recent nuclear explosion and missile of the Red Chinese. Here, three things must be taken into account. Number one, they have cheaply developed an international uh, continental ballistics missile. Uh, they have made the nuclear warhead sufficiently small to put on the missile. They've miniaturized it, which in itself is an incredible task and one hell of an accomplishment. And number three, they've blown it up over Chinese territory, so they perfected the safety device to that extent that they can blow it up. Now this suggests to me that we are up against a nuclear power now, you know, that carries with it, you know, some great, a great deal of tension. And yet McNamara said four weeks ago that it'll take years for them to develop, you know, a ballistics missile that could conceivably be thrown anywhere. And then like 48 hours later they, they blow it up. I yield to no man in my you know, my, uh, my respect for Secretary of Defense McNamara, but I sometimes wonder, you know. Yes, sir. Well, I must tell you, uh, I don't subscribe to the view that by virtue of being an actor should automatically disenfranchise you from uh, possibly seeking public office. My concern, of course, is not that he's an actor, per se, but that uh, the hell with being an actor, does he know what he's about? Has he ever had any experience in governing? What are his philosophical, political views? Uh, uh, what sort of background does the man have? Now, in terms of Regan, we were exposed to a phenomena, a glib man who claims to have been, you know, the president of the Screen Actors Guild, which in point of fact he was, but was never a very damn good president. If anything, and even at the time, you ask most actors, this guy was thought to be a company man, and forever a company man. And he was not representative of really trade union. And also, the Screen Actors Guild is hardly a union, you know, in, the ter in terms of the way we think of unions anyway. All the business, the clothes shop, has no meaning to the Screen Actors Guild, and, and most of the other little nuances that attend labor unions are not applicable to actors and writers' guilds, because they're professional guilds, not really unions. So in point of fact, Regan's association with labor was a very uh, temporal thing at best. Well, beyond that, what are the qualifications that Ronald Regan have to be governor of the most populous state in the Union? Well, I could find a magnifying glass. I still couldn't, couldn't discover it. I don't know how the hell this man can run for public office. Now, in point of fact, Steve Allen would have roughly the same problems going for him. And again, indeed, my emotions dictate that I accept Steve Allen because he's a friend. And number two, because I think he thinks properly. He's a sensitive man and a compassionate man. But again, I have to ask myself, sure, he's sensitive, he's compassionate, he thinks the way I do, and he's a nice guy, and I like to have him over to my house for dinner. But what are his qualifications for the Senate of the United States? I have to pose the question, and it would be the question I'd pose to any candidate. Yes, sir. Oh, don't even say that, buddy, will you? <laughs> Is there any way we can stop him? Not at all. Not at all. The Yorty wing of the Democratic Party is as militant and well-organized and tough to beat as there is in the state. And I would guess probably that what we're going to suffer now for the next couple of years, unless we, you know, get off the dime somehow, is that we will have a Democratic Party not unlike the Tammany machine in New York City. Yes, ma'am. I wish to God he could. I'm not sure he can. Some, but one of the... 
either Art or, or, or Len mentioned to me today that they felt that Kiko would never even try to run in a primary again, a Republican primary, because he's doomed. And Tom Kiko is one hell of a man, too. Well, that's the other problem, you see. Then you've got the Yorty group to contend with. What do I think about it? Yes, I do indeed. I think if Kiko runs in as, an, as an independent and does it properly, and the Democrats are, you know, carefully aware of this and refrain from putting up a candidate, as they might very likely do, as in the case of the Warren time, when they, when both major parties, you know, subscribe to one candidacy, I think the same thing might happen. Yes, ma'am. Well, oddly enough, I guess the election of Mr. Brooke was, in a strange way, almost a white backlash in itself, insofar as his, you know, his dedicated opposition to the Stokely Carmichael faction. But I'm delighted anyway, I must tell you, for a Negro to come into the Senate, which is his right and due and long overdue at that, to me carries with it a buoyant collection of hopes that there is a Negro in the Senate of the United States, only one, mind you, but there he is. And to me, that carries with it an emotional, very positive feeling. Yes, ma'am. Democrats don't comment on the Wallace victory in Alabama? Well, politicians don't comment? Well, first of all, I suppose, because it was to be expected. It's as Groucho Marx used to say, uh, in terms of the successful personality in the show business, he says, behind every successful man is a woman. And behind that woman is his wife. That's what Groucho uh, Marx used to say. I saw Wallace in television, and I must tell you, not since Laurel and Hardy have I ever seen anything quite like it. Oh, listen, my dear, I venture to say that many things far more phenomenal can happen in the state of Alabama and Mississippi and in parts of Louisiana. We have not yet scratched the surface of idiocy in those areas. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I think the criticism probably came when it was first announced that dear Lurleen would run. Uh, and then the criticism, of course, was somewhat acidy because they realized that unfortunately Lurleen would probably win. And in the state of Alabama, a friend of mine who had been there recently told me that the, if all Wallace would have really had to do was to, you know, declare a holiday of the state government and close the state office building and the electorate would go along with it. That they're for him. There are a group of politically conscious and oriented Alabamans who are somewhat more progressive, though not a hell of a lot, you know, who took a dim view of this obvious sloughing off of a, of, a, of a state constitutional law there. But nonetheless, you know, they're, they're totally impotent. They can't do a thing about it. But I tell you what I wish would happen, though, when he said in television that night, did you all see that when, when Wallace got up? Brilliant kid, he, you know, he thinks. And his wife is really nice, too. I really dug Lurleen. Right. She, she sounds like a ship on its way to Honolulu. That night. And I wish she would. But... Uh, she said, uh, he said, the question was posed, I think, by the NBC guy that, uh, what does this mean, Governor, in terms of the possibility of your running in 1968? And, uh, and George was, you know, always with it. And George said, well, he said, uh, there's no question, but that if indeed we discover that the, uh, that the atheists and the socialists and the communists, those are the three heavies that he always, you know, uh, it's what you want your daughter to marry. It's that kind of a cat out of the bag. It's the last fortress against logic that they dredge up, you see, the stave of the barrel. And he said, well, indeed, if they continue to control, you know, this, the powers of government, uh, in, uh, federally and nationally, I may well have to take a position with a third party. And my point is, I hope he does. Because what votes would George Wallace attract if in terms, we're, if in, in a sense we're dealing with a moderate candidate? He would detract from the right wing who would elect whoever was the least moderate. And I think it would be a shoe-in for whoever was the most liberal of the candidates if George Wallace could siphon off those kind of votes. Now, how many Americans fall into this category, I don't know. The, the, the Goldwater demise, of course, I thought at the time was uh, somehow definitive that, you know, 63% was it that went for Johnson? 
So oddly, you know, there are only 37% idiots, you know, who remain in the country. And that's a pretty reasonable breakdown, I think. If there are any Republicans in this room, I must be the most cordially hated guy. <laughs> yes, sir. Not anymore. Not anymore. I, I'm fishing. I'm retired. Indeed. I felt, for example, that the Regan use of television was brilliant, if not inspired. It picked on that facet of the man which was the most sociable and the most attractive. It didn't ask him to answer probing questions. Uh, it showed him in those areas in which he was weakest but which needed strength. A factory, for example. And there he's shaking hands with the fellow in, you know, in the riveting machine. And the riveting machine guy is saying, God bless you, uh, Ronnie. I love Jim King's row, that kind of thing. <laughs> and then, uh, then there's another, uh, then they, they show him in the Mexican area. You know, oddly enough, again, an area of weakness. You know, most Negro, Chinese, Jewish, ethnic group, political group, grouping, would of necessity have to be anti-Regan. There he is, and being cheered with, you know, Mexican language banners. And this is what they did, very studiously and very carefully. And uh, I must say that if I didn't know Ronnie Regan, I came from Venus, say, and I landed here, and they say, this is the guy who's running for governor, and there he stands, six foot one, broad-shouldered, reasonably trim-waisted, at least more trim-waisted than Batman, let's put it that way. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he gets up and he says his few glib, you know, reasonably uh, uncombative kind of statements, non-combative kind of statements. I think to myself, well, this is a pretty, this looks like a governor. You know, I'd probably vote for the son of a gun. But his use of television, I thought, was most effective. Unfortunately, Brown didn't have the money, apart from, you know, the lack of good planning. He simply didn't have the money to compete. Yes, sir. Dark glasses. Well, the question presupposes that many liberals refuse to comment on the Warren report. Is this true? I'll take that under advisement without, uh, you know, without submitting to it as being the fact. I'm not sure it is. However, uh, the fact that I'm a liberal has nothing whatsoever to do with my refusal to comment. The point of fact, I'm just finishing the inquest book. I'm only about halfway through. I'm not sufficiently knowledgeable to make a comment on something whose ramifications are that basic and, and fundamental. I think the, the, the business of the Warren Report, indeed the projection of you know, what might be the case if the Warren Report is incorrect or fallacious or improper, I think those ramifications are so basic and fundamental to the whole fabric of this country that I wouldn't just want to slough off with a quick answer to you. That's the whole reason for my not wanting to comment, because I haven't read all the material. Understand? But I'm not afraid, mind you. I'm not afraid. Okay. I'm petrified, actually. <laughs> but, uh, well, Howard Fast would hate you to say he was a science fiction writer. Oh, oh politically, Howard Fast. Oh. Uh, well, I'm not as far to the left, I suppose, as Howard Fast. Uh, I'm much more the middle rotor in most areas, uh, but most science fiction writers, I'm not as aware of their political stance as you seem to be. I, I know Ray Bradbury is very liberal, and but I don't know whether Frederick Brown or Isaac Asimov or any of these people are liberally oriented. Are they? That they do suggest a liberal position? Well, I would guess I'm on a par liberally with most of them. I'm not as gutsy as Bradbury. First of all, Bradbury refuses to ride in an automobile, drive a car. That's for, for openers right there. And that's pretty liberal, man, I'll tell you. <laughs> uh, and the second thing is, during the McCarthy days, Ray Bradbury published a full-page ad in the Daily Variety in which he chastised Senator McCarthy. And in those days, you know, it was rather unpolitic of one to do so. Now, I did a similar thing in Cincinnati, Ohio. But, you know, it's a lot different in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was only making like $13 a week anyway, so, you know, what could they take from me? Uh, but for Bradbury, in his position then, al already accepted as a, you know, a pretty reasonably high-level writer, it took some guts. But I presume most authors, most creative people, by and large, 
tend to side with the liberal forces. I think that's historically true, is it not? Yes, sir. My opinion of Vice President Humphrey. Oh, mind you, when I respond this way as glibly and as quickly as I do, I don't want you to presuppose that I believe I am necessarily wise and all-perceiving in all of this. I'm, as I mentioned on the platform, I, that was no false humility. I'm probably less red than many of you. Uh, Hubert Humphrey, yeah. Uh, well, I had lunch with Hubert Humphrey uh, once, uh, last summer. I was invited to the White House. I just wanted to drop that name while I was here. And I must tell you that that was the most exciting thing in my whole life. I never met a president. And when the call came, call White House Operator 14, and I thought, the call, the call, see? And then I thought to myself, Jesus, it's drafting. I'm going to get drafted. Because I was active reserves, one of those idiots that was in active reserve for 11 years, see? And I thought, oh, God, they're bringing up the old men with the children now. <laughs> but in point of fact, I sat with Humphrey, and I found him an articulate man, albeit somewhat talkative. Uh, I, I must tell you, again, I have to examine his positions uh, in terms of his response to certain social problems. And over the years, the political stance of Hubert Humphrey is close to my own. I cannot explain what is the his current, you know, detraction from our ranks here uh, in terms of the Vietnamese thing. Obviously, it's politically expedient to do precisely what he's doing. If he were to turn around and make a speech at the Kiwanis Club in Minneapolis and say, Lyndon Johnson, you know, you ass, what are you doing? I think we would have seen the last of Hubert Humphrey within 50 miles of Washington, see? So I presume, it's, I think the criticism that most liberals level at him is that all right, he may tacitly and quietly go along without saying anything, but why indeed must he run around the country in vocal support of saying? And I don't understand it, I don't know. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. I objected to the boycott in the election because I thought it unrealistic. Uh, I don't believe that it's proper to dismiss a candidate because one of the basic issues that he believes in is uh, in variance to your own, when in point of fact all along the rest of the spectrum he believes pretty much as you believe. And so by boycotting the election, you automatically guarantee the election of a man who is absolutely the antithesis of everything you believe. Now this to me seemed unrealistic. My jab at the new left was not a militant, you know, disregard of any validity in your point of view or in your stance or in your beliefs or in your fundamental philosophy. I understand the motivation of the new left. I do think, and have always felt, that in their preoccupation with LSD and, uh, you know, the bearded marching and the rest of it, uh, that there's a great deal of noise with perhaps on occasion insufficient substance. Uh, I hear an awful lot of screaming and crying for issues which I don't think are of the essence at the moment. For example, to me, LSD is not the issue. And why the hell would you march for six and a half hours so you can get a syringe stuck in your fanny? There are many more things important. That's what I'm trying to say. I think if you want to march in terms of, you know, Negro rights or something like this, it's absolutely correct. But some of the things which you use as, you know, as the symbols of freedom that you cry for, I don't think really are of the essence. But I obviously am not as well read in this. And I didn't mean to, you know, slough off the new left at all. You're mad, aren't you? <laughs> No, I was not. And I could have learned a lot, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, sir. I think it's a sir. I only see a hand. It's a ma'am. Hello, madam. <laughs> Would you repeat that? I'm sorry. The University of Oregon. Yeah. call that pretty gutsy, don't you? I'm serious. I'm serious. Uh, I must tell you, of course, I, I wouldn't have that kind of guts. I would not have the guts, for example, to burn a draft card. Uh, and though I may not be able to sympathize with those who do, 
I well understand why they would. My concern about draft card burning and lying down on railroad tracks, you know, in front of munitions trains, I think is well motivated. But again, I think in a sense this is a dismissal of law and order again. And needless to say, my sympathies go out because I understand and rather sympathize with their point of view. But it opens up vast vistas of dangerous projections. What if the far right decides, for example, that law is the law is improper and that current proprieties are unimportant? And they go ahead and do it. And what do you have happen then? You know, carloads of guys in New Jersey with grenades who are doing exactly the same thing according to their lights as we do when we burn draft cards. They're spitting at the law, just as we do. I simply submit to you that there has to be basic law. See? And that's not in response to your question, I know. Uh, yes, ma'am. Well, I didn't go ahead. You're quite right. The question, of course, was that I took the position militantly uh, that the two aspects of the civil rights things that I dislike so much, and that though I didn't like looting, I sympathize with it. But, you know, what else do we do? You're asking for a concrete example. I think the Head Start program, I think the poverty program, I think a deep and conscious and constant awareness of what are the causes of Watts and Harlem and Atlanta should represent pretty much 50% of our government preoccupation these days. And I think we should pour money into it and experts into it and uh, dedicated government people into it with far-reaching plans and keep on doing it. Currently, you mean? Not when it costs $2 billion every three months to, you know, to process a war in Vietnam. I don't agree with that at all. I think that's a waste of money. What would 10% of that money do to this college campus in terms of allowing more students to study and give you an extra library and three more books a year to read? <laughs> all right. I thought that was kind of a popular comment, but I take it back. <laughs> I suggest that the government continue in precisely the manner that they've begun and also on city and local and state levels as well. Keep going into Watts. Get these job starting uh, things begun. Ultimately, they are a step in the right direction, my dear, because once you make people economically sound, you, you take them off the streets and their children go to school, and that begins the cycle. I realize this is an oversimplification, but for to all point in, intent here, I think it suffices. Education certainly is the thing, but nobody is going to give a damn whether their children go to school or not if they haven't got three squares a day and a decent place to live and the assurance of economic security. Yes, sir. Forgot your question, huh? <laughs> the news is controlled by the government? Some news, I'm sure, probably is news from the front, so they say. I can remember once, for example, you forgive me, old soldiers, you know, we, we have this thing. <laughs> I remember once we were on an island called Lady Island. Take notes, kids. Uh, <laughs> and we were trapped up there for like 31 days and eight days without chow. That's food. Chow. <laughs> uh, and so one of the things dropped us via air was the copy of the Pacific Stars and Stripes with a big front page article with Douglas MacArthur's official statement that the fighting in Leyte had come to an end. And uh, I remember thinking, you know, this is obviously the garbage that's going to be sent back home. And people are going to think, you know, why did my kid get killed on Thursday when on a previous Monday they'd stopped fighting? This kind of thing. I rather imagine there is a collection of euphemisms which apply to army communiques. They, I think they apply in most wars. Uh, as to certain basic and more fundamental political problems as handled by the news media. I I'm sure the government, too, softens and somehow discolors. I rather think so. But by and large, we've got as free a press as I think exists. Yes, sir? I don't know. I swear to God, I'm hung up on that one. You think we should? I just don't know. I, I think, in principle, we shouldn't be there. My problem here is a more realistic one. How do we get out? That's the question. And you say pull out, and I'm sure a lot of people subscribe to that. Uh, I just don't know what kind of, what would be the result of, a, of an immediate pull out. What, for example, would the North Vietnamese do to the South Vietnamese, or et cetera, et cetera. 
I'm not, I'm not supporting either side at the moment. <coughs> My feeling is that it's a civil war, plain and simple, and that our presence there was erroneous to begin with. And if indeed, as a matter of principle, we will run into any country in which there is the possibility of a communist takeover, we've got an awful lot of work ahead of us. Or indeed, if we, if we subscribe to even deeper principle and say, as many of the right-wingers would have us believe, that we should go into Cuba because the poor Cubans, you know, uh, languish in political jails. And if this is the principle to espouse, there are 13 South American countries where political people languish in jails. They happen to be put there by the right rather than the left, but the principle remains the same. You know, if we indeed are going to fight for world freedom on a global scale, I think we might as well all leave college and put on the uniforms because this is a 150-year war. Only fools multiply, multiply folly. I agree with you. But I'm, I'm only suggesting here, on a political level, how do you simply take your troops out of Vietnam? Vietnam? Well, this is another big can of peace. But I think it's immoral that we are there to begin with. I will say that to that extent. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm rich to begin with. <laughs> You don't think I'd work for this honorarium for, you know, for, uh, no, in point of fact, uh, the, 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 uh, the series, uh, the, 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 the demise of the series didn't help, uh, let's put it that way. But I've been pretty fatigued by television anyway, and television indeed has been pretty fatigued by me too. Uh, I've gotten to reach the point where when I walked into my network, which was CBS, it was like going into a lion's den, you know, really, uh, an arena of combat in which I would scream at them and they would scream at me. And then I would go and make a public statement as to what was said to me and they would deny it. And in point of, again, uh, once they called me in last September or a year ago September, I had a Western on the air at the time. It was called The Loner. And I didn't know how alone this guy was until I saw the ratings on that show. <laughs> All alone. <laughs> And they had called me in and told me that they'd gotten a hundred people off the street to watch the show. They just literally pulled them in before the series went on to look at one of the representative film samples. And the audience of a hundred people hated the show because they said uh, there was no there was no good guy quote and no bad guy and there was no shooting. And that this was a western. And by God, what right did we have, you know, to um, to uh, to impose upon you know the traditional western, you know, with a big peaceful motif there. And uh, the guy, Mr. Dan, said, uh, what we need is more violence. And he said it, quote, what we need is more violence, unquote. And I made the statement to the press that Mr. Dan of CBS said we have more violence. And, you know, it, it hit the fan. Mr. Dan denied he'd ever said it. And my own partner, Mr. Dozier, who currently operates Batman, went on the podium himself and said, I never heard Mr. Dan say such a thing. And I suddenly felt, you know, I'm all alone here and my memory has failed me totally. But I, I just find it, you know, I, I finally wrote a Broadway play, a pacifistic play. And I wanted to do it for years and years. I've had it in my mind. Every writer, I think, worth his salt aspires to something other than what he is doing. The novelist wants to write the play. The screenwriter wants to write the novel, etc., etc. I think it's the normal progression. And I've always wanted to write the play. And uh, last Friday, after it had been turned down 15 places, it got finally sold. And the producers are currently doing this, uh, the investigation, the Auschwitz thing on Broadway. And they're going to try this. They've lost money in every venture they've had, and this should be no different, I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, it's, you know, what you want to do. But no more TV. It's, uh, it's backbreaking. Yes, sir. I think the whole documentary approach of the news and documentary departments of most major networks are probably the most enlightened and the most adult and the most creative of all of the counter of their counterparts in TV. Uh, I think back, for example, at some of the NBC white papers and some of the CBS reports and the question as to censorship, for example, was broached the other a moment ago. The last thing I saw in Vietnam by CBS I thought was pretty damn revealing of a negative point of view. And they, boy, they laid it on the line. And I thought, you know, far from being censored, this was as honest and as, an, as objective a report as I'd seen. But uh, I, I happen to feel that in the area of documentary and news, the networks are by far at their best. Yes, sir.
Yes. There's no question but that's true, and that's unfortunate. But I think it represents principally a fact of life that there are there is no footage available on the Viet Cong side. I venture to say, for example, if the CBS News Department got some film footage of a Viet Cong speaking in English and indeed bespeaking his views on the current conflict, they would put it on the air. I don't question that for a moment. If I'm wrong, you know, kill me. But uh, I really believe that's true. Uh, and I, for example, would love to hear what is the Viet Cong position. I'd like to know what those guys think. I don't know. That's one of the reasons, you know, why I shy away, you know, from the very spe you know, specific position of let's get out of there. I want to know who the enemy is, and I just don't know. I just want to take this fellow. Oh, I believe they should endorse political parties so long as the equal time law is effectively utilized. But the equal time law, in terms you're referring to the to the Robert Wood statement on KNXT, in which he takes a position on the part of the station that they support the candidacy of Ronald Reagan and Robert Finch. Well, now the equal time law calls for an equivalent amount of time in which the opposite view can be so stated. But the equal time law also carries with it an obligation that not the individual appear, but a representative. In other words, Anderson could not respond himself personally. He had to send a representative, who unfortunately was old Rod. Uh, and, I, and, you know, they could have picked a much better guy because... I really couldn't conjure up vast enthusiasm for Glenn Anderson. I've never met the man. They call him the quiet fighter. I'll say he's quiet. He's quiet. He's invisible. You know, he's non-existent. You know, I, I always wonder, is there really a, a Glenn Anderson? He's alive and hiding in Burbank someplace. I don't know. Uh, but, but that was the problem there. Because then, of course, the station says that if indeed Anderson comes to respond, then the Republicans in turn have a right. And it becomes a whole vicious cycle. The equal time thing then goes into effect. And, you know, 90% of the programming are rebuttal and, and argument. But uh, I don't, no, I don't question the right of a TV station to espouse an editorial opinion any more than I do newspapers. So long as they give the, uh, the opposing side an equal time, I mean really, quote, equal time, unquote, exclamation point, yes, I don't, uh, and so long as they so label it as an editorial opinion. I would much prefer Robert Wood doing it than that sucker on Channel 5 six nights a week. You know, the guy that turns sideways to you <laughs> and waves the American flag, the studied, mannered imbecile who introduced Max Rafferty last night as our enlightened, articulate, progressive superintendent of whatever the hell he is. Uh, what's his name? What's that guy's Putnam. name? Putnam. Putnam. Are you hearing? Are you listening to us, Putnam? No, in this guy, under the guise of the objective reporter, he manages to somehow snidely insert every political view of his own, which is continuously on the on the right side. Uh, so I would much rather prefer, you know, if we're going to have it, let's label it. You know, not you know, not this 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 business of uh, giving a newscast and deliberately weighting it on whatever side he personally feels. Yes, sir. I reject censorship in principle, on any level, in any state, in any way. And I ask only one question, and it has been asked by every writer since the beginning of time, why no censorship? Because I want to know who the hell is going to do the censoring. You know, Senator James Eastland of Mississippi just pushed a bill through the state legislature in his state, you know, in which they had the right to review any book or movie, you know, that went through the docket in the state of Mississippi to decide whether or not it was obscene. Well, by God, I'd hate like hell to have Jimmy Eastland. I call him Jimmy, you know. I'd, I'd, you know, I'd be desperately afraid of what Eastland, what standard of judgment he would apply to what is profane and what is, you know, subversive. So, Mike, in principle, I reject censorship because I don't believe anybody's wise enough to know what, what's proper to censor. Yes, sir.
Yeah, I can. I think potentially it could be damaging, as it occurred, for example, in 1964, when they were announcing if. If indeed the the Goldwater Johnson campaign had been very close, and the Eastern projection at six o'clock in the evening would have been a gold a, a say a Johnson smash, and that would have materially have affected the number of voters going out here. They figure first of all the Democrats think well what the hell if it's a big smash why waste the time why go out in the rain, and the Republicans think the same thing you know it won't do us any good. Meanwhile that election could get close someplace between the Rockies. And those voters who were defected by not going, you know, could very materially affect the the outcome. In that case, of course, it didn't because it was a landslide. But I noticed, for example, that in the eastern election results, they did not announce any California projections until uh, 7:25 or 7:35, deliberately waiting until most of the polls had closed. Yes, ma'am. Oh, simply by virtue of their own words. The Proposition 16 proponents had radio spots on the air in which they kept talking about the decent, law-abiding Americans who don't like violence in their streets and don't like pornography in their home. And then, some, as a matter of fact, they related that Proposition 16 to the attempt on the part of these same people to kick out three of the state justices, including the Supreme Court, including the, uh, the uh, Chief Justice. The two spots were identical, and they were very interrelated. Does that answer your question? Still not. Well, what I'm suggesting here is that the, these people were the same people that kept talking about violence in the streets. And read your Bruin today. Uh, one of the columnists made mention of the fact that, boy, when they talk violence in the streets, they don't mean violence in the streets. They mean Negro riots. And when they talk about law-abiding Americans, they don't mean law-abiding Americans. They mean white law-abiding Americans. And the implication is quite clear. Only in terms of the way they publicized that anti-obscenity amendment, because they kept relating it to decent, God-fearing Americans who hate violence in the streets and indeed hate obscenity. They made the connection themselves. The people who supported it on the face of it, anti-obscenity, of course, has no relationship to, to race relations. But they, they indeed made it so themselves, the, the proponents. Yes, ma'am. Excuse me, before you start, we'll have time for about two or three more questions. I'll grant you what you say is true, but then I ask you to re-examine what is the political climate in the state of California. Pat Brown made one public statement that was quite militant and, and quite explicit in terms of his personal feeling about capital punishment. He said he felt that it was immoral and improper and in point of fact didn't respond to any of the problems that really motivated capital punishment being brought to the fore in the first place. This was the extent of what he said. He didn't militantly fight for it, you're quite right. But at least he made the position known. Had Pat Brown gone down the line during an election and said one of the issues which I address myself to is capital punishment and I'm against it, he loses X number of votes that way. I'm just suggesting that there is a certain reality to politicking. And perhaps you're right, you students. You know, you're younger than I am, and you can still subscribe, you know, subscribe to, to certain idealistic tones that I, because I'm older and, and beaten, I don't. But there are certain realities that we have to face. One of them is that if a man fights for an issue which he knows the general public rejects, he automatically kills himself. My point and my response to this young man and to you is that rather Brown, who I know during once in office will probably address themselves to my side of the fight on most issues rather him than the other guy who I know is militantly opposed to everything I believe in. Just call it the lesser of evils syndrome if you like but I would much prefer going with the lesser of evils than the knowing than the known evil. That's all I'm saying. How about integrity? I know that too, but perhaps Laurie Sherman ran because he knew he didn't want to lose, uh, no, he couldn't win, and maybe did it. I listen. I respect Sherman. I contributed to the campaign. My kind of guy. I wish that Christ he could win, but he couldn't win, and he couldn't win because of the nature of the positions he took. Now, what about integrity? I'll grant you that that somehow has flown from the scene. All I'm suggesting is that in this state of California, sometimes compromise a little when it's incumbent upon you to do so, so that you can serve in a position where you don't have to compromise. 
let's get in the house and then change the furniture. But don't take the positions, you know, at the absolute exclusion of reality that by their very nature deny you entrance into the house. That's what I'm saying. I, I, I know you don't accept that, and I'm not throwing that out, you know, as, as the wisdom of the age. You're right and I'm wrong. I believe me. I think integrity should be of the essence. But in the state of California, where do you go with it? Because you won't get into public office with it. That's for damn sure. Yes, sir. Well, one more. This will be the last question. Okay. Obscenity does not have the right to exist. Well, I disagree with that because I want to know what standard of judgments apply as to what literally is 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 uh, pornography. I, I don't know. I think anything is acceptable, and if indeed, you know, this injures the sensitive feelings of parents, if these are sex magazines, plain and simple, and if uh, they can materially hurt the fabric of the child's upbringing, etc., let the parents be responsible. Don't let the kids hide it inside their school books and take it up into the bedroom. It's the parents' responsibility. Because I think the projection of censorship as a principle is the dangerous thing. Pretty soon it's not just the sex magazines that are up for grabs. Then it becomes the, the commentative magazine of the political scene, which somehow has been permissive of a dirty play, say, being printed, etc. There goes Leroy Jones. Uh, there goes this guy. There goes that guy. And pretty soon there goes George Bernard Shaw. And invariably that's the way it works. And it works traditionally in every country in which there has been a loss of freedom. Where does it begin? It begins in news media, in public print, in books and on the proscenium. That's where they attack you first, right there. That's the breadbasket. Understand? But you disagree with me. I'll meet you outside. <laughs> I, I think that's about it. On behalf of all of us here, uh, I think uh, all of you uh, will join me in thanking Mr. Serling for his sitting here and really taking it. Thank you.